0: Please turn also to the Old Testament, to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This also is the reading of God's word. Cast your bread upon the waters... As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for the word that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for the admonition from your word. Father, that we would be careful how we live our lives. That you, indeed, are the righteous judge. And Father, even as we uh, think back... Uh, to how it is that we live our lives each day. We pray, Father, that we might live in light of eternity, that we might live in light of the fact that after we die, we will face your judgment. And Father, may we be faithful to you. May we embrace the promises of the gospel. May we trust that Jesus alone is our righteousness. And Father, we pray also that the decisions that we make would manifest The faith that we claim. That we would live in humble submission to you. That we would live uh, trusting in your mighty power. Trusting in Jesus Christ who is our hope of eternal life. And Father, even as he is our hope, we pray that he might be the hope of others too. And Father, we pray that we might be willing to take risks for you. That we might be willing to invest. That we might be willing to believe That you are still calling sinners to faith and repentance. Father we pray that the gospel would go forward with power this day. That if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ. That you would indeed do a mighty work of transformation. And Father we ask that uh, your son Jesus Christ would be exalted. And that your servant would be humbled. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. How often do you plan in such a way where you say, this needs to happen at this time? So we're saying, hey, we, we have to get to church on time and church starts at 9.30, or if we want to be there early, 9.15, that then we have to leave the house at this time. That means uh, we, we have to start getting into the car by this time. And, and then we have to have breakfast by this time, which means I need to get up by this time. And so you think about something as simple as planning your day, or perhaps it might be uh, getting to work and, and, and getting your, your project done. But as... As we think about the word of God here in verse nine, when he says, but you know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment is as if we have to say the same thing. Judgment comes. We face God in judgment. And then you have to start looking back. Well, then wait a minute. What needs to happen before I die? Well, wait a minute. Before I die, then how should I be living my life? How should the decisions that I make each day, uh, uh, what should those decisions be? And for whom should I be making these decisions? And here the address is uh, not in a matter of may we worship our youthfulness. May we not uh, delight in our youthfulness and when it's gone that we lament. But rather that our rejoicing in Jesus Christ would begin even from our youth. And it not end as life progresses. The good news of the gospel in God's favor doesn't come to an end when our youth comes to an end. That God is with us from conception even to the grave. And he is manifesting his sovereignty, his lordship over our lives every step of the way. And as we look back to our lives, we we anticipate the judgment to come. And that should affect every decision that we make in our lives. And so we see here that we're getting close to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And here, it's as if... A father is talking to his son, or a mother talking to her child, and uh, having a disagreement. And the, the conclusions or the, the assumptions of the child uh, are wrong. And it's as if you're the author of Ecclesiastes is like that parent saying, Okay, let's, let's operate, let's function on your assumptions, and let's see where those assumptions take you. So Ecclesiastes, uh, the author of Kohelet, is doing his acupuncture when he says, Well, you, if you're, you're saying that there is no God and, and that there, there is no truth outside of what we witness, what we see, what we uh, can experience in our own lives, then, then this is what you're left with. And as he's coming to the end, he's trying to draw these conclusions for people. And this matter of the coming judgment of light... We can acknowledge that light is sweet, that the light from the sun is good, but the light of Christ is far, far better. And it's as if we have to draw these conclusions from the whole of scripture, even as Kohela is making these arguments saying, hey, this is, this is where you end up if you begin with the exclusion of God. And we can follow this line of thinking. So this truth that we see in today's passage, living by faith in Christ means investing, risking, and serving God wholeheartedly while trusting him with the results. Living by faith in Christ means investing, risking, and serving God wholeheartedly while trusting him with the results. We'll look at this in two points. The first is taking risks, not knowing the plans of God. And the second, sober choices, knowing the certain end of men. So the first point taking risks not knowing the plans of God. I'll just read from uh, let me see from verse four through six. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Here, it's as if the author is following up on a thought from Ecclesiastes 10, chapter 18, when he says money is the answer for everything. And here, what we notice is that money and the view of money... Uh, tells us so much about what we hold dear. I recall back when I was in seminary, Melissa worked as a banker, and it seemed like she was able to do so much more ministry. I I had so much reading to do. I'm not a fast reader, and I was there stuck at home or in, in seminary studying. And here she was a banker talking with people about loans and investments and all these things. And, and there she was able to get into the very heart, or so to say, the very idols of people. As they talked about considering divorce and, and the, the damaging effects it has on not only your credit, but your wealth. Investing in a home and trying to stretch to buy too much. When we talk about money, we talk about the very hearts of men and women. So here, money is the answer to everything. And he's, he's addressing uh, these issues about money and investments. So when he, when he talks about financial decisions, then it addresses decisions in general. It addresses the method or the philosophy of making decisions and how we make decisions. And perhaps that should raise the question for you and for me. How do you make kingdom-related decisions? Are you attempting to limit the loss and failure? Or are you willing to take risks on behalf of our Lord Jesus? In verses 1 and 2, we have two different illustrations where he addresses the matter of taking risk and how we should address risk. Verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. I'm going to admit to you up front that this passage or this verse, verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, that there is a whole lot written. There is a whole lot written throughout the history of the church regarding what this can mean or should mean. So the big debate is, is is it talking about charity and almsgiving, right? Is about talking about giving to the poor or is it talking about financial investments, I don't think it really matters either way which one it is. Either way, it refers to uh, decisions where there is no guarantee of return. Uh, I think the preference is to the latter view, that of a financial investment. Uh, because here, when you think about bread, the word, the word for bread and the word for food is actually the same. And when we think about food, right, we think about investments, you're trying to think about your food for the future. The same principle we see in Proverbs 30, 31, verse 14, talking about the wife of noble character. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. So when it says cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. It's as if the same principle in Proverbs 31 is is that uh, you're going to send out your investments uh, to to this in the sea. So doing ...doing a trade across the ocean, across the sea. And you will find it after many days. So, after many days, this addresses the first rule. The first rule is that patience is needed to await your return on investment. This is to say that if you invest in something financially, casting your bread upon the waters... You cannot expect that your return will come in an hour or in a day. It's going to take some time. It requires patience. So also your work on behalf of our Lord Jesus. That this work, that this work oftentimes doesn't doesn't bear fruit right away. And that God has designed it that way. Your prayers on behalf of others. For their growth, for their salvation, uh, for wise decisions, for change. Oftentimes, you think about the sheer number of hours that you might pray for someone. If you add it all up, however many hours or, or days or months or years of time you've spent praying for people. And perhaps the first question you might ask is, will that prayer ever be answered positively? And in that regard, we we don't have such a guarantee that everything that we pray for, it will be answered positively as we've asked for it. Uh, we We have the assurance that our prayers will all be answered. It won't be all answered as we've asked. That God has provided other answers, better answers. So it requires patience on our part. What we have is the promise of God regarding His Word in Isaiah 55. That the way that the cycle works is that the oceans, that there's some kind of uh, it evaporation, that it makes clouds, that clouds get full, they dump water, and it, uh, water flows downhill according to gravity, and eventually it, it travels through the land and through the, the rivers and back to the ocean again. And the cycle continues, and God said that in the same way his word will not return to him empty. That's His promise. His word will not return to him empty. And for us, we often think that His word ought to be received. It ought to be believed. The good news of the gospel ought to be believed. And converts ought to be made. And we often think that that's the only way that uh, His word doesn't return to him empty. But that's not what God says. It could also be that that you and I are the saver of life unto life and death unto death. That those who reject God's word... That there's a greater judgment for them. And it's accomplished the purpose for which he sent it, And we cannot argue with that. We we have to be willing to accept that. And that God, not man, God is the one who defines success. He is the one who defines what returning empty means. And how returning not empty, returning full, accomplishing the purpose for which he sent it. He is the one who gets to define that. There's also dividing your portion in verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. So here, this mention of financial investments, it continues. And he's talking about now the second principle, that of diversification. And the simple way we understand it is uh, of the old-fashioned saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So if uh, if you are going to invest, uh, don't buy all one stock, right? You, you look back at Enron, right? The situation Enron was at the, the 90s, uh, and and this is this is bad news. Putting all your uh, all your retirement investment into one one basket. Now regarding investments, you realize that uh, there ought to be diversification. Is this this even an application that we could say, hey, if you're going to buy stocks or make investments, you ought to have seven or eight of them. That's a good number, right? It's not one or two, and it's not a hundred, right? So seven or eight. Now, regarding our labors, right? We ought to be thinking in various areas that we ought not to put all our time and effort in one area. There ought to be various things in which we invest in for the kingdom of God. For God's glory. Now regarding salvation. I hope you understand. The principle of diversification. Does not apply. That we have to say. All of our eggs. In our hope for salvation. That we might be justified. It must be in Jesus Christ. In him alone. There's no diversification here. You think about the, the various forms of polytheism. Right? If you witness to a, a a Hindu, right, talking to them about Jesus is no big deal for them. They say, Yeah, I'll just add him to my list. And everything is fine until you say, No. He has to be the one way and only way. He is not a way, he is the way, the only way. And and that's when they no no no. No. Then then the problems come up. And you realize that investing regarding The way of salvation. Jesus must be that only way. There is no other option. There is no other option but Jesus. There is no other savior but Jesus alone. We think about this lesson about investment. And how does it apply to the kingdom of God? We ought to understand That if you're going to invest financially, there's one principle is you kind of need money to make money. If you don't have that, then you need something else like labor, right? So you have labor to make money. But if you have money, you can make money. But if you have money to invest, there will be a potential for loss or failure. Meaning you invest in certain things and they don't pan out. Just look at the way that the pharmaceuticals work. However many chemicals that they call medicine, they have uh, thousands of them, and they do trials, and out of the thousands that they attempt these trials with, you know, out of thousands, only one comes up with an actual drug. There's failure. There's loss. And there will be failure and loss as you pursue gain, as you invest in the kingdom of God, as we define it, by our eyes of flesh, that there will be failure. There will be wasted efforts. But none of those efforts really are wasted if you're trusting in Jesus Christ. John twelve twenty four. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here Jesus is telling us this very principle is that that seed must die if it's going to bear fruit. There there will necessarily be loss. And applying it to the kingdom. You think about the various ways that a steward is different than an owner. That you and I are called to be stewards. We're stewards of the gospel. We're stewards of the gifts that God has given us. That we're stewards and we're not owners. And a steward is called to follow his master's word. He who owns what he has given us. We're called to be faithful with it because it's not our own. It's, we're stewards of it. You're stewards of the gifts that God has given you. You're stewards of the resources that God has given you. You are stewards of the children and grandchildren that God has given you. Because they're not your they don't you don't own them. God, God sees them as his children. And we have that parable of the talents that we read earlier in Matthew twenty five. That there was risk involved. That the man with the five talents. And the man with the two talents. That there was risk. They gained five more. And two more respectively. There was diligence involved. There had to be research. There had to be uh, time spent. There had to be labor made. And then you had the man with the one talent. Let's just call it the one talent servant. Is that he thought about the grand scheme of things. And he said... He's concerned about loss. He's concerned about risk. So he buried his talent in the ground. What he was really missing was a proper view of the master. Think about what he said to the master when the master called him to account. He said, I knew you to be a hard man. You reap where you do not sow. What he was saying was, Master, I did not want to labor and have you profit from me is as if we were saying, we don't want to labor because we know, God, that you expect to receive all the glory. And we ask, what is wrong with that? There is nothing wrong with that. God is the one who uses sinful, imperfect, broken vessels such as us. And that when we labor at all, of course, our master is the one who would receive all the glory. We think about hindrances to action. In verses 3 through 5, we have uh, hindrances, uh, things that prevent us from taking action. So we have in verse 3, The clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south as to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. This is called uh, being paralyzed by the inevitable. Clouds that are full of rain are going to dump. They will dump rain at some point. And when a tree falls, it lands somewhere. And by that, we're, we're thinking, well, wait a minute. If, if the clouds dump rain, and I'm doing my harvest then, the, the wet harvest will be ruined. It's going to grow mold. It'll go stale. And then if a tree falls into my field while I'm harvesting, well, it could crush me while I'm working there. It could, it could ruin the harvest. And all these things are what are called the inevitables, meaning that tree, if it falls, it's going to fall. Whether it's north or south or any which direction, when the rain clouds are full, they're going to dump. It's called a trying to plan around the inevitable. And what can we do about the inevitable? Well, that's the very definition of the word. It's inevitable. So, generally, nothing. We can't do anything about it. Don't waste time and effort thinking and worrying about it. It's like trying to change the things that you cannot change. Don't do it. Don't worry about it. You think about the the various things that can come up. Well, is it possible that uh, if you are active in serving the Lord Jesus, that there will be a target on your head by Satan? Oh, you better believe it. That if you're, if you're warming the bench, right, Satan's not going to bother you. You're on the bench. You're not scoring points for the basketball team. I mean, he's not going to bother you. But if, if you're going to be diligent and, and trying to, to take, uh, and you're trying to attack the, the gates of Hades, right, then of course he's going to put a target on your head. He's going to try to shoot at you. And you might ask yourself, well, this could lead to problems. This could lead to people hating me. Uh there might be people protesting outside because uh, because of what I said or what I did in, in wisdom, in love, right? Speaking the truth in love, you may get canceled. You may get canceled, you could lose your job, you could lose your business, you get fired, right, for sharing the gospel, depending on how, how things go. But here, here you understand. We can think about all the what ifs, the inevitables, right? We need to have wisdom, of course. Right? you do so in love, of course, but you can think about all the what-ifs, and that fear just drive you insane. There's also the being paralyzed by speculation in verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Paralyzed by speculation. What might happen? What could happen? Watchers of wind will not sow, and watchers of clouds will not reap. You're concerned that the wind will blow your seed away. Well, my my efficiency rate of seed that actually bears a crop, you know, the percentage goes down if there's too strong of a wind. Well, if you keep on watching the wind, you're not going to do it. It's just like uh, you know trying to try trying to do exercise in, in a in a winter day where it's like kind of sort of cold and kind of sort of not. If you're going to go, go. Put on warmer clothes. If not, then. Uh, stay at home. But if you start watching the weather, it seems like it's never going to be good enough. It's never going to be good enough. There's no perfect conditions for anything. There's no perfect time to bear witness of the gospel. That the gospel is needed all the time. And for some of you, if you are waiting... For a commitment, waiting for the proper time to follow Jesus Christ. The only proper time is today. You make that commitment now. That Satan always says tomorrow will be the day, but that tomorrow will never come. Following Christ, committing to the Lord Jesus, today is that day. You think about how this rings true for us in making plans around COVID, right? Well, that's that's the reality. We can make plans. And... I think it's uh, General George Patton. He had this saying, a good plan violently executed now is better than a perfect plan executed next week. See, military people understand this, that they have to make life and death decisions based on insufficient, incomplete information all the time. They don't know what's happening. They don't know the weather. They don't know where the enemy is, per se, and where he might move, but you know what? We have, to, we have to take action. They make a decent plan. They carry it out. And it's violent in how it's done. And it's done. But you can't wait a week for it. And so also, you think about what it's like for Christians. that we make decisions every day. We can't wait for the perfect time. And there's something that we have that the military people don't have. Who make life and death decisions all the day. Every day. Is that we are able to trust in Jesus Christ. Who is in control of everything, who's in control of life and death, who's in control of success and failure, however those are defined. That this should give us hope in the work and the decisions that we make every day. We have also verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So what we have here is being paralyzed by ignorance. There's many things that we do not know. We should, we, should not, we should not be shameful to admit that. There's so many things we don't know. We don't know about how the bones are formed in the womb, the direction of the wind blowing. We don't know what work God has planned. We're called to invest. We're called to labor. We're called to be diligent. That we're not called to presumption. Right? We're not called to presumption. We're not called to arrogance regarding our plans or to greed. But we are called to faith. We are called to diligence. It requires that we take risks for our Lord Jesus. It requires that we live a life uh, that is bold, that is daring, that is courageous. There's also the matter in verse 6 of being paralyzed by fear or the potential of wasted effort. In the morning sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. Will morning and or evening sowing produce? Or will they both fail? Or will one fail not the other? What well, we have in the word of God is our labors are never in vain. 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Anything that you invest in by faith, anything in which you're serving the Lord Jesus by faith, it's never wasted. It's never wasted effort. So here we have taking risks not knowing the plans of God. We have the second point sober choices, knowing the certain end of men. In verses 7 through 10. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, In your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Here we have two parallel sections. Verses 7 and 8 and then verse 9. But they're they're parallel. You can kind of see where it's talking about youth, it's talking about light, and uh, it's talking about darkness, talking about judgment. So light is sweet, but darkness comes. That uh, youth is good, but God brings judgment. So this light is sweet. It's good for eyes to see the sun. You can kind of think of this in terms of uh, the energy in that you have during the summer versus the winter. Over here, that there's fewer hours of sun, and the sun is is less strong in, in, uh, in the winter versus the summer. And it's as if when the sun shines in the summer, that light comes into our eyes, and it's good for our bodies to have light in the eyes. That in other countries, like in Scandinavia various uh, multinational companies understand that they're for their employees, that it's good for them during the winter months to travel other places because the rates of, of depression and suicide are high, particularly in the winter in the winter times. And light is sweet then. We can understand that it's, it's better to be uh, in the summer for most people because there's more energy that people have. And if light is sweet, meaning physical light, the photon light, then how much more sweet it is to see the light of the world in Jesus Christ. That light indeed is far, far better. So if you look at is it better to be in the physical light under the sun or in darkness? Most people say, well, it's better to be in the light. Light is good. And here we're saying that if you look at spiritually, is it better to be in the light of Jesus Christ... Basking in his light. Or is it better to be living in darkness? We're told in John 3. That evil men hate the light. For fear that their sins will be exposed. This is why people don't like to come to Jesus. This is why people don't like to come to church. This is why people don't like uh, Christians in their midst. It's because they are witnesses to the light. Based on how we live. And what we say. Who you are. That... The light of the gospel is indeed good and is most important because it determines, it determines where you will spend your eternity. Think about uh, the life of the youth. So if a, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many It's easy for young people to think that youthfulness will never end. To think that we will be forever young. And then you start to see that first gray hair. And you pluck it out. And then you realize that there's too many gray hairs. You should stop plucking them out because you will have no more hair to dye when you choose to dye your hair or or not. And the bottom line is you realize that, that all these things point to the fact that this life will come to an end. And, and I hope you understand. I'm not, I'm not mocking you. Okay. I, I have my own gray hairs to deal with. right? I, I'm identifying with you here. And if this is true for the present life, that we're not going to be forever young, that we should be thinking about eternity, where you will spend this eternity. Will there be dark days for you? And the answer that we have to come up with is, it will be dark days for you if you are outside of Christ. And if you are in Christ, if you're in Christ Jesus, then there will be joy and peace eternally. But you and I need to be thinking about, well, what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for us today? Look also at the parallel statement. In verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Now, I want to make a distinction here. It's not saying rejoice that you are young. No, it's not saying that at all. It's saying rejoice in the Lord while you are young. You see the difference? Because if you're rejoicing in your youth, when your youth goes and your rejoicing comes to an end. It's not what it's saying. It's saying, rejoice in the Lord while you are young. While you are young, begin rejoicing in the Lord and continue rejoicing even into your old age, into, into your greatness. And where your days come to an end. And this requires that we live differently than the world. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So young people, are, they're going to do what they want to do. And the, the word here addresses that. Walk in the ways of your heart and, and the sight of your eyes. This is what young people do. I do what my heart's desire and whatever my eyes see, I covet. And is that not a good summary of the carnal life that Jesus warns us against? Coveting what you see and desiring of the heart the worldly things. Instead, even for young people, we're told, or we need to ask this question, is your heart guided and curbed by the Word of God? And do you walk by the eyes of faith and not according to the eyes of flesh? So this is how you and I ought to be thinking. Because we ought to know that in all things, God will bring you into judgment. So we look back, and and is God saying that he wants to spoil all of our fun or rob us of all of our joy? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that our joy ought to be in him. That our fun ought to be in the many things that he has given us, rather than thinking, let me trespass and find fun. In sin, the world's going to say, "Hey, God sets up all these rules to take away all the fun away from us." That's what—that's the Satan's message. God's going to rob you of your fun. Don't do what he says. The Word of God says, "No, no, we're sparing you from all these potential pitfalls. By faith, we receive God's Word. We obey Him. We trust in Him. Are you going to walk according to His Word?" trusting that he holds us back from the things that are no fun. He holds us back from the things that harm us. Then he's freely offered us Jesus Christ. That God will bring you into judgment. How will you be saved? It is only by the perfect work of Jesus Christ. That God commands you to receive this good news by faith. You realize that it's not any addition. It's not faith and then a little bit of your works. Now, Jesus, Jesus doesn't come to help you to save yourself. Others, other religions talk about this. Oh, Jesus comes to help you to save yourself because you need works in order to save yourself. If it's going to be by grace, then it cannot be by works. Otherwise, grace. Is no longer grace. Anytime you add a little bit of works, of your own works, your own effort, your own abilities, you completely remove the saving power of the gospel. So if you're to trust in Jesus Christ, you must trust that his righteousness is perfect and there's nothing that is added to it. How then should you live if God will bring you into judgment? It means that you and I must live for the glory of Jesus Christ. That Jesus risked it all. And so to say, he lost it all. But he gained far, far more. That we're told, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, so to say, what he had before. He died on the cross. He has more now. Greater glory, greater satisfaction. And God promises you the same thing that if you and I are willing to trust that we take risks for God, He is the one who sees to it that we receive even present, but certainly eternal rewards. And the the payout, you think about the earthly investments. If you can get a twofold a five-fold, a ten-fold increase in your investment. You invest a dollar, you get ten dollars. You could say, that is a crazy good gain. But you realize Jesus promised far more than that. 100 fifty, one-hundred-fold. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ that, Jesus, you said that my return would be exceedingly great. That you said that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places... Are yours. Are mine. That's a promise of God. Are you and I ready to believe it? We believe that. Whatever loss we have in this life. Jesus. Knows and understands. Every single one of them. That decisions that you make each day. That there, there will be. Loss. There will be rejection. There will be. Uh, despising, you realize that for some people, that following Christ means the loss of your family, the loss of your loved ones who who are going to say, you know what? You choose to follow this path, you are dead to me. You no longer exist. Is that a reality? That that is a reality. That your friends would say, you know what? I'm never calling you back again. That's the reality of life. But you have to count the cost. And you and I have to come up with a conclusion. (laughs) That in every one of those circumstances, we have to say, to gain Christ, is that much better. And that we might say, we regret none of those losses. Because the gain that we have is so exceedingly great. Even now, but certainly for an eternity. That you and I might say, to trust in Jesus Christ, to commit our lives to Christ... There was no greater decision, no greater satisfaction than that thing. That you and I, you and I can look back and, and, you know, play the Monday, Monday morning quarterback on all the bad decisions we made in our lives. But may we never go back and say, you know what, following Jesus Christ, I'm reconsidering that. No, no, no. That we might say, it was worth it. There is no doubt. There is no change we can add to that. Jesus indeed is glorious. And He is worthy for us to follow Him today and each and every day of our lives. May we go to our God together in prayer.